Hey people, welcome to Jay's World. I'm your host, Jay Gilmore, and we're four episodes in. Season one, episode four, and this is a must listen. Today I'm joined by some phenomenal women. I like to call them Wonder Women. Five females from different industries and professions with wisdom for days. From the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, Executive Director Elena Tate. By way of Nashville, Tennessee, we have Katie Morgan. She's a chief meteorologist for the Fox affiliate there. We also have Beverly Keel, the first female dean in the College of Media and Entertainment at Middle Tennessee State. And by way of Atlanta, Dr. Maja James, a senior human resource manager for Grief Incorporated. And out of Austin, Texas, from the Texas Supreme Court, Justice Eva Guzman. Ladies, thanks for joining us. How are you? Doing well. Good. So let's get right to it. Elena, tell us about your background. Well, thank you, Jay, for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to be here and meet all of these ladies um, and to have this conversation that we're going to have. I'm sure it's going to be helpful to a lot of people. Um, I've been in criminal justice field for about 20 years, but I've been in law enforcement, oh, going on 19 now. Um, I started out in Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta. I've been in Nashville for six years now. Um, I was with Gwinnett County Police Department for 14 years before I relocated to Nashville. Um, and I worked my way up. I started out on the street patrolling and I've done everything pretty much. Um, there's pretty not, there's not, the only thing I didn't touch in law enforcement is drug investigations, but pretty much everything else I've had some hand in. Um, but now as executive officer with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, I uh, create and implement special programs and, and projects for the Bureau. Um, I basically analyze and look at policy sometimes. Um, just anything that employees or that processes look like needs to be changed or created, implemented, modified. Um, I go ahead and do that research and put it into motion and I, I coordinate a lot of different efforts across a lot of different, not only internal uh, units, but also externally with other state agencies also handle coordination efforts. Beverly, what's your life like in academia? Well, I am in my third month as Dean of the College of Media and Entertainment at MTSU, where I have worked as a professor for 25 years later this year. And uh, it's been interesting the last couple of weeks because we have had to uh, transfer all of our teaching to online. And so uh, I'm in the office, but very few people are on campus, so it's okay. Um, but my background is uh, journalism and music publicity, and I've been a magazine editor and a newspaper columnist and a uh, record label executive, and uh, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Dr. James, talk about the world of HR. <laughs> so I'm a senior HR manager for Grife Packaging. Um, we provide and manufacture boxes, containers, um, and then recycle said materials. So right now we are part of the essential workforce um, in ensuring that the medical profession has the boxes and uh, cartons that they need for their items, as well as the grocery stores, et cetera. So um, it's been a pretty trying time for my, for my part of the industry. Uh, a little over 22 years um, in human resources, started out in the retail segment, uh, just as a local store HR manager and has just kind of worked myself um, through the track. Uh, other companies refer to my role as a uh, director level role. Uh, we label it as senior HR manager. And um, I provide support um, for about 700 colleagues across the country. I have 24 locations that I support directly. 
um, and then indirectly, I support 18,000 colleagues across the country in, in some uh, fashion. Um, in addition, I've, I've started delving a little bit into academia. I received my doctorate last year um, and immediately started teaching a master's level and bachelor's level human resource class for Beulah Heights University. Um, this semester is my first time teaching online, so I'm supporting organizational management. Um, it feels good to take the real world experience and delve that into the classroom. So loving human resources, I provide strategic support for um, the CEOs and presidents of my organization, as well as direct investigation, et cetera, just generalized human resource support across the country. So glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. We're happy to have you. And Katie, you're no stranger to the, uh, to the camera, are you? <laughs> no, I guess not. Um, yeah, I... I got my degree in atmospheric science at the University of Missouri uh, several years ago, and um, broadcast is just kind of the the uh, the business I happened to slip into. It was not my original intent to get into the broadcast world. I was looking into operational forecasting and meteorology with either the National Weather Service or um, possibly doing operational work within airport towers. Uh, they employ meteorologists or maybe private sector like FedEx or um, UPS uh, or Delta. Uh, so all of those companies need meteorology, of course. So I uh, just happened to get into broadcast and I've been doing this now for about 14 years. And in the broadcast world, you tend to bounce around a lot. So I started in Topeka, Kansas out of graduation, which was an amazing market to be in for meteorology. And from there, I went to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for a couple of years and uh, dipped my toes um, literally in the Atlantic Ocean, but also into tropical meteorology. And then went to Cincinnati, Ohio and worked as a morning meteorologist there for a few years. And then this wonderful opportunity for a chief meteorologist gig came open uh, here in Nashville. And that uh, is a rare opportunity, uh, not only for uh, a chief gig, but as a woman, as a chief in a, a larger market, it really was something you couldn't turn down. And I've been here now for six years and I'm loving it, so. Pretty cool stuff. Now quarters in session, Your Honor. Tell us about your career. Well, thank you very much, Jay, for inviting us um, uh, to join you this afternoon. I, I am a judge on the Supreme Court of Texas. It is the uh, highest uh, court in Texas for civil matters. We're the court of last resort. There are nine of us. Uh, we get to the court through appointment or some people just outright run for it. But eventually I have to convince uh, millions of Texans that I am the right person for the job. And my last election to the court was in uh, 2016. I became the highest vote getter in the history of the state of Texas. So no one that's ever run for any office in this state has gotten more votes than me. And I point that out because there are challenges that come with being a woman of color and pursuing offices and career roles that traditionally had not, where the doors had not been open for us. But, but I was able to do that. I was able to do that successfully. The court hears um, disputes in, in just a, a myriad of issues uh, $1 billion dispute, we recently decided, we'll also decide, uh, you know, matters of statutes, laws that the legislature passes. I became a judge in 1999 for the first time. I was the trial court judge, then an intermediate appellate court judge, and then finally uh, I got to this position. I listened to all these wonderful backgrounds, and I have a question that just dawned on me. Has any one of you ever had a female supervisor? Oh, yeah. 
often. Most, most of my career has been in what we typically call male-dominated uh, industries um, prior to the, the current company, which is all manufacturing. Um, so most of the time, what you see is primarily males. Um, in my last position, I was working with a um, distribution company, and that was Class A CDO drivers, a warehouse workforce, more of a blue-collar workforce. Um, I think what you see, and, and what we're trying to change the culture a little bit, is human resources has been, you know, in the past, dealt as a paper pusher and not necessarily a strategic partner. And so as we we're starting to change that, you know, the desire there is to have actually more males enter the human resource discipline um, and not look at it, at it as an administrative role that's being tied by women. The challenge, though, is typically the partners that I work with are male dominated. Um, so some of the CEOs and vice presidents have typically um, tended to be um, of the male background. Um, and then in, you know, in the human resource profession, part of what we do is figure out how to diversify the workplace and get more women in, in a lot of those positions. It's a, it's a responsibility that we have as human resource professionals is how do we change that culture where you typically see a male dominated background and open up those opportunities for very competent women. So it continues to be a challenge in human resources and we continue to put our heads together to figure out how to solve that dilemma. Katie, did you have something? No, I was just gonna mention that I've had a lot of intermediate women supervisors along my career path, um, but currently right now we have a female general manager at our station. So um, it is, it's nice to see that for sure. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. And Jay, let, this Go is ahead. Eva. Let me, yes. let me mention that on the Texas Supreme Court, since the mid-1800s, prior to the fall of this year, there had only been eight women that have ever served on that court. So it is, it is a, a place where, where women have, have not been well represented. We this year have three women on the court. But since the mid-1800s, total of eight women, and the first one got appointed somewhere in the 19, late uh, 1980s. Eva, so let me ask you this. As we talk about women, let's bring in Latinas into the conversation. Talk about the privilege of swearing in your daughter to this industry that you love so much. So thank you for asking about that. Um, I, I did have the privilege of practicing law before I became a judge. But if you look at the statistics in, in the United States, Latina women make up less than 2% of the, the lawyers in America. And I myself am the first Latina to serve on the Texas Supreme Court and to even serve in a statewide office after being elected. And so when my daughter joined the profession, it, it was so, so special for a lot of reasons. First of all, I know I'm the first Latina state Supreme Court justice swearing in her own daughter to practice law, signing her law license. And then in the context of my parents being immigrants and having elementary school educations, it all just sort of came together that day. So it really was special, but I hope the message there is, is hope and opportunity and that so many doors are now opening that in the past had been closed. And so we really do need to continue to have women and women of color with a seat at the table so that we can be part of the, the push to push those doors open. Beverly, you just accomplished a first year yourself. How important is it for females to have a seat at that table, but not just a seat, but an important voice? Well, it's vital because we bring experiences and perspectives that men don't have, just as men have perspectives and experiences that we don't have. So I was the first um, 
female recording industry department chair and I became the first female dean. And, um, you know, for me, I've it's just been working. It's every, it's sort of all that I've done, all that I've known, but I could tell that my appointment really resonated with a lot of women here because they feel like now they will be heard. They will be taken seriously. Uh, they do have a seat at the table because before, uh, is the, uh, Justice said, we, we weren't at the table, often we weren't even in the room. So having a seat at the table is important. And now that's not enough. We have to make sure that we're heard. Elena, you talk about daycare and you talk about all the responsibilities that come with work. How do you balance it all? Well, that's one thing that I've talked to a lot of people about. Um, first, I don't think you ever achieve balance. Um, I don't think you can ever achieve balance. I think if people say, you know, perfection, talk about perfection, it doesn't exist. Just like balance doesn't exist. Um, I think the most that you can do is just to strive to listen to what your body is telling you, what your mind is telling you, um, and to try to at least uh, take that take that day or take whatever you need to do to decompress, to restore your mental energy, your physical energy, um, which is very important um, because obviously if you don't take care of yourself, then you can't be uh, effective um, for others. Um, so that's, that's in every area of your life. Um, and I think one of the things, especially in law enforcement that I've done a lot of work on is trying to uh, get the law enforcement culture um, to, to absorb how important mental health is, how important work-life balance, what that means, and how to incorporate that into an organization's uh, culture. Um, men tend to have a Superman type of complex of like, well, I'm not going to, especially in law enforcement, um, you know, I don't need to talk to anybody about it. I don't need to, I'm just going to push forward. And unfortunately, the side effects of that are divorce, suicide, alcoholism, drug addiction, um, all of these things. I mean, police officers, just like any public safety member, any criminal justice um, associate understands that you see so much, you hear so much, it impacts you. And so you have to be aware of that and, and how that's impacting you and, and be able to say, it's okay, I need help um, and not feel stigma that's attached to that. And I mean, it's, I've, I've seen over the last 20 years progress in that area, but it's nowhere near what it should be. Um, and it, it's just hard to get people to understand that, you know, it's okay. You're not, you're not going to be, um, you know, chastised or blackballed or, talked about um, or prevented from promotion or opportunities because you asked for help. We talk about the word first a couple of times today. So to arrive in Nashville as the first chief met, that's pretty cool. But how much cooler is it to look up some time later and see that all four stations in your market are led by women in the, in the uh, weather department? Yeah, I think that's, uh, we've talked about that before, the, the four major stations in town uh, all. I don't, think there is anywhere else in the country, at least not to my knowledge, there may be um, where there are four chief women, chief meteorologists um, all leading the way. Not only that, but in the weather service, the National Weather Service here in Nashville is also led by a woman 
the Warren and Coordination Meteorologist, who is sort of their main go-to person, uh, their PIO uh, in some way or form. And um, she, you know, it's a woman there too. So really the weather is, is controlled by women here in Nashville. Um, and I think that's pretty neat, at least uh, delivering the weather is. Um, so it is, it's, it's amazing too when uh, you get emails from young women or even uh, girls, I'll go to schools a lot. And that's one of my big passions is to go out and, and share my passion with uh, elementary school kids and middle school kids and even high schoolers. Um, you know, why I like weather and why science is cool, especially getting into late elementary and into middle school. Um, girls tend to start to shy away more in the science field. And that's why STEM, I think, is becoming such a big focus now. And so um, we can go out and we can, um, you know, share our passion for science and how it, you know, it is a really an amazing um, thing to do and to study, it's, it's neat. I remember one time, in fact, I went to a school talk, I think it was um, a STEM-focused school, a group of fourth graders, and uh, a little girl raised her hand and she said, what is a chief meteorologist? What do they do? And I said, well, the chief means that I'm the boss. I'm the one that's in charge and I'm in charge of my weather team. And her eyes just lit up and I, I could tell right there, just she had this light bulb go off and said, wow, I can be a boss. That's pretty neat. <laughs> so it was, it was a really neat moment to, to just kind of share that. Um, you know, I, I think that's just my passion is to, to pass it on, pass it forward to the next generation. And, and to be a role model for that, I think I'm, I am truly blessed in that, in that respect. So Awesome. Awesome. Eva, what type of obstacles have you had to overcome throughout your professional career? Well, I think um, obviously uh, when when there's over 100,000 lawyers in the state and only nine at any given time will ever have the opportunity to to serve on the, on the state's highest civil court, uh, and that's one obstacle. It's really preparing yourself to um, for the challenge, preparing yourself in, in the sense of doing everything that you can professionally to uh, indicate and, and, and to um, uh, that, that you're ready to decide the most important cases in the state. And for me, that started when I was on the trial court. I was asked during that interview, um, I, I was, they asked, you're very young, are you really going to be a trial judge, you know, the, the, the rest, you know, for the next 20 years? And I said, no, actually, my goal is to be on the Supreme Court of Texas. So I started very early on with this goal that I wanted to serve on the state's highest court. And part of that meant uh, being very well prepared on the jurisprudence side of the job, making sure that lawyers knew that I was prepared to decide those cases, that I'd done all my homework, that my decisions would stand, would stand the scrutiny. Who cares about what judges do? The parties in the case and the academics. and. And, and it impacts you know, millions of citizens at any given time, but the people that really pay attention are, are, are those. And so making sure that your decision process withstands that scrutiny. Um, then of course, in Texas, we elect judges. And I was always appointed, I was appointed by Governor Bush and Governor Perry, but I still had to run for office. And that's a huge obstacle. And it's where it's sort of that first um, barrier to entry can you do this? And I was never particularly per political, so it was really um, learning that process. 
And you have to be willing to adjust and you have to be willing to learn and you have to be willing to learn from your mistakes. And I made them and, and others will make them, but um, I say that there's four letter word that keeps women out of the, the you know, uh, career goals, it's fear. F-E-A-R, fear. Fear of um, rejection, fear of not being able to overcome those obstacles, uh, fear of what others will think about you. And so it part, along the way I was afraid, but you gotta put that aside. Beverly, when she mentions the word fear, have you had a point in your academic career where you thought, I'm not good enough for this. Maybe I shouldn't apply for this. Have you been afraid of some things that were holding you back from being your best you? Uh, no, I would say what I had to learn to overcome uh, was promoting myself because especially being a, a woman raised in the South, um, you're told not to toot your own horn, that your work should speak for itself and that you will be noticed. and. Uh, in the workplace and uh, men are promoting themselves and if you don't take credit they'll take credit and so I've had to learn how to um, promote myself and let people know what I'm doing um, you know there is a fine line because with women there's that double standard where you get oh she thinks she's all that right where a man is confident but a woman is uh, full of herself so uh, I have used social media as a tool to just let people know, if you let people know what you're doing, that's a way to spread the word about your accomplishments without bragging. But um, that has, I also, uh, being Southern, I tend to play down my accomplishments, uh, especially to make others feel better and more comfortable. And uh, I didn't realize how bad I was doing it until um, I was interviewing Ben Montinch, who's one of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He's also someone that I've known during the years. And at the end of the interview, this was for People Magazine, and he said, what have you been up to? And I said, oh, you know, just teaching and doing my little journalism. And he said, Beverly, I hardly think People Magazine is little journalism. And I didn't even know I was doing that. But as a Southern woman, you unknowingly minimize yourself to make others feel better about themselves. You're listening to Jay's World Podcast. You can email the show and suggest topics for an upcoming episode. Email Jay at j.gilmore at memphis.edu. Welcome back, world. Now we're going to go down a human resource lane. Dr. James, what can companies and organizations do to be better advocates for female employees? You know, I think first we have to admit that there's an issue, uh, you know, to, to each of our points, when you're living in the world, when you are the person that is a female in the workplace, it's very obvious to us. Um, you know, even as we sit on this call and we're listening to each other, you see the head nodding and we can all relate, although from very different demographic, professional backgrounds, we can all relate because at some point in time, either we've been that person or we've known someone to be that person. And so, for us in, it's, as human resource professionals, we have to admit that there is a problem. And once we're able to admit that this is a problem, that then we can work on ways to make sure that we're solving it. Um, we have to, you know, when I talk to my leaders, we have to be very intentional about ensuring that women in the workplace understand, um, to, to Beverly's point, that the opportunities are there. Um, you know, brag, tell us a little bit about yourself. My, my catchphrase is don't dim your light so other people can shine. You got to be able to talk about what it is that you're doing well and be very clear um, to Eva's point, um, to the justice point, 
of making sure that people understand what my goals are and what it is that I'm trying to acquire and being very bold about that. More times than not, you're being talked about behind closed doors um, and you determine a lot of what's being said about you. There's plenty of times where uh, we'll have a position and I'm very clear on where the men in the workplace stand because they've you know, come into my office, they've ensured that I had a copy of their updated resume, that I understood what it is that they're doing to hone in on their skills. And on, on the reverse side, I've had to reach out because it is a passion of mine. I've had to reach out to women in the workplace and say, where do you want to be five years from now instead of already knowing? So, you know, again, I think we have to admit that there's a problem, become intentional about ensuring that we share and identify those opportunities and create developmental opportunities to assist those of us who may be struggling with tooting our own horn, who may be sitting in a seat of fear and understanding that there is a seat at the table for you. Elena, how do you feel about mentorship as it relates to organizations and agencies? Yeah, so that's one thing in, in law enforcement that I think um, a mentorship program, an official one, not unofficial, um, <clears throat> would be have huge benefits um, for agencies. And one thing that I have mentioned, um, I think to you before, Jay, uh, <laughs> I've had plenty of conversations and discussion with women in law enforcement of various levels, starting out you know, in the middle of their career and also very seasoned. And one of the things that uh, I think that we're craving is to be able to identify um, and really bond and get a mentorship, have a mentor or be a mentor um, to, to another female in law enforcement. Um, there are definitely some networking associations out there, but there's not enough and there's not a lot. Um, and so I think that would be helpful, but it's not only just women mentoring other women, we have to get the men um, behind, you know, those men in those positions. Uh, who can support that and also help to implement that into organizations. And, it, you know, I, obviously I can speak on law enforcement, but I'm sure that would be beneficial in any industry. Uh, but definitely to meet those, a mentorship program that would meet specific needs for women um, would, would be very helpful in helping to not only recruit, but also retain um, employees as well. I so greatly agree with you. In terms of people, I, you know, I, I spoke to a white female journalist last week and I told her I appreciate her work so much because she always advocates for the black athlete. And I told her I feel like sometimes it, it needs to be someone who doesn't look like you to help you with your voice. Um, and I think in that regard, some other people might begin to listen. Um, if it's a black athlete complaining about XYZ seven days a week, it could fall on deaf ears. But a, a 60 year old white woman saying the same thing that he's saying, her audience is now paying attention. So I think I agree that men need to advocate for women in certain positions uh, because I just think that goes with issues all across the board. You have to have some support from outside of your circle uh, to make some uh, other people pay attention. In terms of glass ceiling, I'm not gonna direct this to anyone. What comes to mind when you hear the term glass ceiling? Uh, limitations would be the first word that comes to mind. Um, and just women being taken as seriously as they should be. Um, sometimes I, I'm a co-founder of Change the Conversation, which is a 
group that fights gender equality in music. And um, one of the things I talk about is the asterisk, uh, meaning the female, the female dean. Now I'm just a dean who happens to be female. I'm not less than because I'm a female dean. Like if you're a female recording artist, you're an artist. And sometimes I think we get, um, we're a little novel if we're the first. And um, I think most of us just want to be viewed as competent in whatever we're doing and not just the female version of that. Eva, let me ask you this. Has anyone in your profession approached you differently because you are a woman? And I don't know that it's intentional, but for example, we hear our cases, we decide what we want to hear, and then we hear them once a month in, in the Supreme Court courtroom, and we get advocates, and sometimes for the male justices, they will say, you know, justice so-and-so, or your honor, and when it's a female asking the question, they may respond, ma'am, well, yes, ma'am, and you know, you see it more subtly, and I don't know that it's intentional that this lawyer set out to respond differently, or they will cut the female justice off. You're asking a question, and they will start answering, and I notice they don't do that to the male justices, but again, I don't think the advocates walk in the courtroom with the intention of treating the female justices any different. It's just something that happens with some of them and I, I think it because you know they're used to arguing to men to male justices and so it's very subtle but I don't blame the lawyers because I don't think I think that if I pointed it out that they would be mortified and they would say I'm so sorry uh, you know I didn't mean to respond differently to you or cut you off and that sort of thing and it happens in courtrooms you know across the country there, there are articles written about this in my profession, which is the same as Beverly's, um, I've heard that from female professors. Someone may say, you know, Dr. Gilmore, uh, Dr. Joseph, Dr. So-and-so, and then they'll go to Maja and say Maja, you know, by her first name, or Miss <laughs> James. But hold up, I went to school just as well. I've earned my doctorate <laughs> degree. So I, I've, right. seen, I've heard that in my hallways a couple of weeks ago, actually. I have two uh, examples. Go ahead. Uh, first year I was here as a full-time professor, uh, the first day of class, a student from the back row, a male student, asked me, he said, what are your qualifications to teach this class? And I said, have you ever asked that of a male professor? And the whole class went, ooh. And he sort of backpedaled and said, oh, I just wondered what your background was and everything. And what was interesting, we became close and he asked me to be one of his references later. And then a few years ago, there was somebody from uh, building maintenance that were dropping off, it was dropping off a set of keys. And in the hallway, he said, I'm looking for the recording industry chair. And I said, that's me. And he says, no, I really the chair. And I said, that's me. And he wouldn't give me the keys. And I had to stop somebody in the hall to say, would you please tell him I'm chair of the recording industry department? So, uh, you know, some of it is just, we don't look like they think we should in their minds, you know? Uh, and, if, and if you go back to mentoring, I think older people tend to naturally mentor young people who remind them of themselves. Mm -hmm. So that young women 
uh, don't remind older men of themselves. And now older men are afraid any sort of overture might be misconstrued. So I think we've got to come up with official mentoring opportunities to make that okay. Someone have something, Katie? No, I was going to chime in about um, just the sort of the stigmas, of course, being on camera and having um, a visual presence uh, in our industry a lot with being a female and especially a female chief is we often get the term weather girl um, instead of meteorologist. And um, in, you know, the counterpart, men don't have to deal with that. Of course, you know, it's always chief meteorologist. Oh, well, the weather girl today on air said this or Miss Weather Girl, whatever. Um, and and um, like was said earlier, I don't think it's, sometimes it is not meant to be taken in a sort of derogatory way or, um, you know, a way of, you know, putting someone down. Um, I think there is, there, there are people out there where if we were to bring it up, they would say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that, you know, it was um, considered, considered less than, it's just the way that some have said it in the past. And I said, you know, so nowadays we'll try and correct them and say, you know, we're, we're not weather girls. I went to school for a uh, science degree. I have a degree in meteorology. I am a meteorologist. So if you would, you know, please, please be so kind to call me chief meteorologist instead of weather girl. Um, I mean, I, there's a whole can of worms I can open with our image, women, as far as being a meteorologist and scientists not being taken seriously. We're just there for eye candy. Um, you know, that's the only reason we were hired. Uh, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole other segment I can go into all about that. <laughs> well, I spend a lot of my time addressing those type issues, you know, obviously be it intentional or not intentional. You know, what we say in the HR world, it's not the, in the intent that matters, it's the impact. And so many times, you know, as we continue to, um, it, it, as the years have advanced, I, you know, my conversations have gotten a lot uh, more different um, because of the demands that, you know, women are making in the workplace because of women with opportunities of power, for, for lack of a better word of defining it. I find myself teaching um, longer term leaders as well as new leaders, you know, the appropriate way on identifying a person just from a leadership perspective, regardless of gender. Um, specifically in environments where it's a, a male-dominated world, you know, times where I've, I, I, it's obvious that, that, you know, a person wouldn't respond that way to a, a male leader in the workplace and having to, A, educate that person, but then B, even educating my other leaders to, to step in and say, hey, that's not okay. You know, this is a leader in our operations and, and not having to defend credentials, um, just identifying the fact that this is a chosen person who's been identified to lead the operation, how do we address that and change that, that culture overall? But I, I think you're exactly right. You know, the, the challenges have become more unique. My responses have become a lot different. Um, and, and again, not having women feel like they have to quantify um, their background or their credentials, but just in creating an environment where this is how we, you know, interact with and respect our leaders in the workplace, whether they're women or men. But it's a constant battle that I wish I could say was going away tomorrow, but we'll, we have to continue to work on it and educate our employees. And I also think women are expected to be better and different leaders. You know, mm -hmm. women are expected to uh, put people first and be more emotional and warmer and 
And, um, and I do think I, I am that most of the time, but there is a, there is a double standard. If you look at, um, you know, uh, political mm -hmm. coverage of candidates, uh, you know, probably with judicial rulings, being a female judge, you're probably expected to have a different ruling than a, you know, a, a male judge. So there, there's a double standard. Yeah, definitely in law enforcement. Um, I have a whole trough of stories, um, <laughs> both my own personal experience and as well as what I've seen and had to step in on to to handle. But I mean, I, it ranges anywhere from being been asked uh, when I was in full uniform with a marked vehicle, are you a police officer? Mm -hmm. um, I've been asked, um, uh oh, cop shopping. I've shown up to calls before, uh, both as a patrol person and as a supervisor. And the person's like, no, I want somebody else. Or um, I've gone to domestic calls and the guy's like, well, you're just automatically gonna arrest me because you're a female. I mean, I've been mm -hmm. told that as well. So <laughs> it's just, it's, right. it's definitely been um, uh, challenges along the way, but I've always, I've enjoyed it. So I just keep pushing past all those things. Um, and, you know, law enforcement is not something to go into lightly. You definitely have to enjoy it to, to not only uh, work it well, but also to have tenure. I think too, you know, one unique challenge that we have for those of us who are moms who have um, had babies throughout our career, you know, there's um, to Beverly's point, helping leaders to not coddle or approach me differently because I'm a mom or I'm, I'm even having a baby. Um, I, you know, it's, again, being in a male dominated world and I, I want my work to speak for itself. I don't need you to change how you interact with me. I'm here to do the job. And, and you know, I remember saying one time I'm, I'm pregnant, I'm not disabled or I'm not incompetent now. I'm, I'm just going to be a mother. Um, and so, but having, you know, something that obviously is unique to women especially in with career backgrounds that are predominantly male and having to quantify that I'm still um, as qualified and, and uh, able to make decisions in addition to, you know, actually creating a life. Um, and so, again, you know, I think that we're in a really unique time right now. Um, you know, obviously, this is a tough time um, for us as a country. It's posed a ton of human resource challenges that we have not in, in all of my years, I've never had to debate or think about, but I do think that it's giving the world a different viewpoint of um, being more sensitive to women in the workplace. You know, I remember companies that said, oh no, she could not work from home. She has to be here. Or, oh no, I can't work that out. Or, oh no, we can't do that virtually. And now we're being forced to. And so I'm, I'm interested when this is all over to see the impact that it has on corporate America and all the things that you told me that you couldn't do that when forced, you were able to make happen. So can we make those things happen in support of women in the workplace? Your Honor, let me ask you this question because I don't know, I know, I know TV. I know TV and I'm learning academia. Do female judges have to consider when to have pregnancies or when to have children based on losing a step inside of the workplace? Yeah. So I think for for lawyer for female lawyers and for uh, 
females in the uh, in judicial office, it, the considerations are not much different than I think they are for women in any number of industries. And it's that work-life balance, which I think you get up every day and you give it your best and it's not going to look the same every day. There are days when I'm so much better than the day before, but never is there a day when my commitment isn't to give it, you know, 150%. Um, I remember being a lawyer and being very pregnant and going to court um, to litigate what's known as a temporary injunction, trying to stop someone from doing something. And I was probably seven months pregnant and I needed to step away to the ladies room and the lawyer says, well, you can do that, but the judge is gonna get really mad if you're not here. So I object to you leaving. That might you know, put, make our hearing get pushed over a little bit more. Well, I went anyway and I came back, but that's the kind of thing that you might encounter, sort of men, being a, you know a little bit abusive about the, the situation and I think it's in terms of being on the bench it's actually um, unless you're running for election that year it's actually more conducive you have a little more control over that schedule so you see a lot of really um, fantastic female lawyers opting for a, a diff, you know going in-house or going on the bench to sort of accommodate children and work, but I don't think there's ever an ideal situation. I mean, I had a girlfriend who was a Girl Scout leader, but she actually hired someone to do all the work. <laughs> so, you know, that works too, if you can do that. So it, it's challenging. Now for my chief met, from an on-air talent perspective, what were your thoughts on the Me Too movement? Um, you know, it was, it was interesting. We have a uh, female broadcast group on Facebook, and it is one of the best resources as women in our industry uh, have because so many stories were coming out um, that, you know, we could share with each other and, um, you know, those, a lot of time even too, just this has happened that someone will post, this has happened in my workplace, what do I need to do moving forward? Um, so, you know, with that whole movement coming out, I think it was uh, amazing to have the support of that group uh, where then we could support each other in helping those to, you know, move forward with whatever story that they needed to, to get out um, or to who do we go to to talk about this. Um, so that, that group for us is, I, I really think is, is vital in our, um, we were saying earlier, mentorship even, um, kind of mentoring each other. Uh, from that group. So uh, it was, it was interesting for sure. And I mean, there have been so many emails um, for some, not me personally, but for some in the workplace, um, Me Too movement issues. Um, but for me, you know, I've, got, I've gotten plenty of fair share, nasty grams, as I call them, emails, um, Facebook quotes or comments or you know, all kinds of things. I've been called everything in the book. Uh, when I break into programming over someone's television show for a tornado warning, which has killed people in its path already. Um, so, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, was a, it, it was an interesting time for sure. And, and again, I think for us that that group was really where we could, we could all come together and then support each other through that uh, to help us, um, you know, with all of our individual stories, for sure. We'll close with this round of questions. Elena first. What advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> 
just, you should have been investing money since you were two years old <laughs> and retired early. <laughs> I like it. So, um, <laughs> I wish I had done it. Uh, no, um, advice to my younger self um, would definitely just, I think I should have been a lot more courageous. Um, like uh, there was definitely some situations now I'm thinking about over my career that I probably should have spoke up a little more um, in defense of myself. Um, I guess, you know, it, and I can definitely relate to what Beverly was talking about when it comes to, you know, dialing yourself back or dialing down because you're, you know, afraid of what other people are going to think. Um, so I think if I didn't care, so, like I could not care less now, but like, if, like then I would definitely... Um, have moved a little differently and not cared so much about what people thought. What about you, Beverly? Um, mine would be to be very aware of office politics and be strategic. Uh, I started off in a newspaper newsroom and was very much, you know, against injustice and thought that, that uh, if you're right, that's all that mattered. Well, no, in the office workplace, it's not you know, and lots of other people think they're right. So it would be aware of office politics, um, build your allies, create a foundation, and don't just feel like you have to be Norma Ray every moment. Be very smart about things. Katie Morgan. Um, I, I was going to chime in on the not not to uh, to be so hard on yourself. And I mean, these are still things that I tell myself every day. I, I'm definitely better now uh, in my mid to late thirties than I was when I was first getting in. Have confidence in yourself. Uh, you are worthy of your, your career just as much as anyone else's. Um, and that you are, you are smart and you are able to do anything that you wanna put your mind to. Um, I just, I think uh, the, the thinking about what people think is really something that a lot of women will hold back um, because of well, what are they going to think of me? Am I pushing too much? Um, you know, in a man's world, it's, they just move forward. They don't ask, they don't overthink. <laughs> um, I think they just do. And I think if I could have been more like that, I'm very proud of where I'm at now, but going back, I would tell myself, don't overthink it. Uh, do and know that you're worthy and know that you are smart and you are just as bright and you are worth where you are now. Amen. Your Honor, you have the floor. That's a great question. Uh, you know, I think it's this idea of not letting others decide your potential and really surrounding yourself by people that believe in you and that are going to help you take that next step. So, so many times, uh, people, especially as a, as a woman of color, people want to cabin you. Well, you're the first there. That's great. How about you stay there a while? Or, or how about you not think about this move or that move? So I really think it is um, um, shaking off the comments and the influences of people that don't have your uh, your fullest potential in mind. People that try to limit, and there, there are so many of those voices along the way. Uh, people that try to define your outer limits or your potential or where you could be or what you ought to be doing. And then along with that, take the bold moves. And someone else mentioned that, but I do think we need to take, be, just 
have the courage to, to make bold moves. If there's no risk, there's no reward. Maja, I'm sure you think you're gonna get the same question they got, you're not. What does a strong woman look like in terms of the image you wanna portray for your two young daughters? You know, that's a good question, Jay. And, and um, you know, I, I think the last few years I've tried to live my life um, with that in mind. He's right, I do have two young daughters and um, I'm a divorced single mom. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, going from being married to divorce and having two young children in, in corporate America while going after a doctorate and trying to, you know, climb the ladder in relation to my career. I want them to see a life of no excuses. Um, you know, I want to show them that if they execute, um, if they go after what it is that their hearts desire and they put in the work that um, it, it's endless. Um, the opportunities are there. Um, they're there for their for the taking as long as they do their part. And so, you know, even as I work, I, I, I talk to people again, looking at our current state and say, this is the best time ever to show people what you're really made of. You have to be purposeful and you have to be unique um, to show that you have a skill set that will thrive in times such as this, you know, and while you kind of have uh, a little bit more time on your hands, now's the time to really put in more work to differentiate yourself from the person who just wants to do the status quo. And so my desire and my goal is just to show them that as long as they put in the work, as long as they stay determined, there is nothing that is not theirs for the taking. So ladies, as I look across this screen or these uh, rooms, I'm just, I'm humbled, I'm grateful, I'm uh, very appreciative. Um, you ladies have so much knowledge and expertise and experience and uh, thank you for sharing it on Jay's World today. Thank you, Jay. Thanks thank for having you. us. Nice meeting you all, ladies. Yes, nice thank you, Jay. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Jay's World Podcast. Jay's World is brought to you by 5G Media and Gilmore Financial Services. Do you need your taxes done? Contact GFS at Gilmore Financial Services at Comcast.net.